Well, good morning for a few more minutes. Is everybody ready for lunch? We're a uh, we're quiet crew in here. Well, glad you guys are here. Uh, we're going to continue our study in Zephaniah this morning. So if you've got your Bible or if you use a phone or tablet, open up to Zephaniah 1. We'll jump in there in just a minute. I, uh, I want to start by telling a story um, of some fun that we had in 2018 in our office. Uh, so Tim Fritzen last year had this desktop calendar that was one of those on this day, and it had like four categories of significant events or history that took place on the day with the date that it took place. Um, well, of course, in our office, we're all a bit competitive, so we made a competition out of it to see if we could guess the date of whatever the significant event was. Um, and there were four categories, you know, history, entertainment, sports, and a birthday. And we've, we, we had a point system. You know, if you got one point, if you were within 20 years, uh, I think we had five points if you were within a decade, and then 20 points if you got it right. Um, so one day, Kurt and Tim and I were the only three in the office, and Tim comes down with a handful of days worth of trivia in his hand, and we sit down in Kurt's office, and right off the bat, first question, Kurt nails it, right on the exact day, and we were like, whoa, I mean, that, it doesn't happen very often, but it happens every once in a great while, so right off the bat, Kurt nails the date, and we are like, all right, it's a good day, it's, we're going to be on it today, next question, Kurt's within 20 years, so he gets more points, third question, Kurt gets it right again, exact date, and Tim and I are like literally like beside ourselves at this point. So we keep going. Fourth question, Kirk gets it right again. Fifth question, Kirk gets it right again. Sixth question, we get it wrong. <laughs> and seventh question, we get it wrong. Eighth question, we get it wrong. I mean, when when Tim when Kurt had got to like five in a row, like Tim was literally going to lose it. Like he was just beside himself. And so we start scaling back, and Kurt go, Tim, or Tim steps back and goes, man, whew, Kurt, you were on fire. And Kurt kind of chuckles and says, well, that's all I can, remem- or all I can memorize. <laughs> he totally cheated. <laughs> he snuck into Tim's office and took some pictures of the days and memorized the dates. <laughs> but we totally bought it. Tim and I both, like we were hook, line, and sinker, like we were, we were in. We thought he had knew, knew all of these dates. Um, and don't tell Kurt this, but the, rea- the reason we bought it is he's actually really good at this game. Like, he knows all kinds of useless dates and information, particularly when it comes to, like, baseball and hockey. Like, if you need, you need those stats or history, like, that's your guy, okay? But I share that story as fun, and, and just as an intro into... Do you ever think about, or does it ever amaze you to consider the depth of information God's capable of retaining? That he knows every detail about the history of your life, the history of every individual that's walked this earth, and he knows every detail about the future, what's going to happen to you. It's hard for me to wrap my mind around that thought. Am I the only one? You guys with me? Um, At present, he knows every single detail about your life. He knows the exact number of breaths you'll take. He knows the number of molecules that are in your body. He knows 
the trials that you'll endure, the people that you'll meet, the joys that you'll experience. And he also knows the specific ways that he wants to use you for his purposes. Nothing escapes the Lord's sight. And he's up to all this and more right now. And that, that's the reality that we get to live in. And it's, it plays into the title of today's message that the Lord is active. We are continuing our dive into Zephaniah. And this morning specifically, we're in verses 10 through 13. Uh, Tim kind of introduced it two weeks ago, and then he kind of dove into t- uh, verses 2 through 9 last week. And, he, and the title of his message was, The Lord Exclusively. And he kind of painted this big, broad picture, kind of a 30,000-foot view of idolatry and how Zephaniah was addressing idolatry that was taking place in Judah. It was a great message. If you missed it, I encourage you to go listen to it. Um, but today in the text, in verses 10 through 13, God's going to get a little bit more specific. He's going to drill down a little bit more into particulars of idolatry and particulars of how he interacts with that. So last week... Tim introduced a definition of an idol from Tim Keller, and I think it would be beneficial for us to revisit that as we get started. Um, So Tim Keller, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, he uh, introduces an idol this way. He says, an idol is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, I'll, have, I'll feel my life has um, meaning and then I'll know that I have value and I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. I think one of the things that you're going to see today about idolatry is Whatever we worship, we serve. Whatever we worship, we serve. And the Lord is going to give us some gracious warnings and gracious reminders this morning that he is the one that we ought to worship. So let's jump into the text, Zephaniah 1, 10 through 13. It says this, On that day, this is the Lord's declaration, there will be an outcry from the fish gate, a wailing from the second district, and a loud crashing from the hills. Wail, you residents of the hollow, for all the merchants will be silenced. All those loaded with silver will be cut off. And at that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who settle down comfortably, who say to themselves, the Lord will not do good or evil. Their wealth will become plunder and their houses a ruin. They will build houses but never live in them, plant vineyards but never drink their wine. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you. This is your word and it is good for our life. Father, I just ask as we study this morning, God, would you do some revealing? Would you open our hearts and our minds to the things and the ways that we worship um, outside of you? God, would you draw us near? Would you draw us in that we may worship you fully, wholeheartedly? We pray this in your son's name. Amen. So, Zephaniah 
10, Zephaniah 1, 10 through 13, what does this tell us about the Lord? That he is active, right? And I believe this is probably a concept that all of us agree with or kind of get to where we would say, you know, face value, yeah, I believe in God, therefore I believe he's up to something um, around us. But these four verses tell us a lot about what the Lord is up to and how he is active. These four verses bring our attention to that very thought, that kind of unengaged thought of, yeah, I mean, he's up to something. You know, Zephaniah serves as a reminder of the coming day of judgment. Yes, historically, it was intended to provoke the people of Judah to remember their place as the chosen ones and to repent of their wayward ways and come back to worship the Lord. But I want to encourage you this morning because the Lord is active today. Don't read this text simply as historical. See this text as a present warning for you and I that we are chosen people considering the idols that we may have built up in our lives. So let's look at this text. Um, How is the Lord active? I think there's three things that I want to highlight for us this morning. The first is that he will silence. We see it in verses 10 and 11, and he continues to describe the grave reality that is coming for Jerusalem and all the people within the city. In particular, he names specific places, the fish gate. You know, the place, it's, a, it's an actual physical gate on the northern end of Jerusalem. The second district where many of the religious leaders and people of Judah actually lived the hollow, which is the marketplace where all the business and trade and sales took place. These are all real physical places that the tribe of Judah would have taken note of. It's as if Zephaniah walked through these back doors and started prophesying about the second coming of Jesus, and he said, (coughs) excuse me, he said this. He said, there is going to be an outcry from the 152 Bridge in Liberty. Literally. There's an outcry from the 152 Bridge of Liberty. There's going to be an outcry from Woodneath and Benson Place. A loud crashing from Jewel's campus. Wail, you residents of Liberty. All the merchants here will be silenced. The Lord states that there's going to be an audible outcry. There's going to be an audible sound coming from the city. Sounds of distress and wailing and destruction and judgment in that day when it takes place. The word here in verse 10, loud crashing in verse, uh, in verse 10, literally translates to a great breaking. The Lord is actively silencing the money-making distractions and the security of the city that was Jerusalem. He's silencing it. All that's left is utter despair, wailing in the cries of distress of the people who've lost hope. The uh, second way that I see the Lord is active in this passage is that he's going to search. He will search. Verse 12 is kind of the pivotal verse in this text. And he says, At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who settle down comfortably, who say to themselves, The Lord will not do good or evil. The Lord, Yahweh, he sees all. And because he sees all, retribution will be unavoidable for what he sees. 
He will search with lamps to punish those who settle down comfortably. Some of your translations, rather than comfortably, might say complacent. I think actually the New, New Living Translation does a really good job of like painting the picture of the seriousness of this text. It says that, it, I will search with lanterns in Jerusalem's darkest corners to punish those who sit complacent in their sins. They think that the Lord will do nothing to them, either good or bad. This picture of light, of searching, needs to be taken seriously because we can't hide anything from the Lord. Take note of like the meticulous detail that like is described here. He's going to search out with candlelight every dark corner, every dark place of our heart. This ought to make us pause. When we think about Psalm 90, it says, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. There's nothing that we can hide from the Lord. Joe highlighted this for me this week, that the Hebrew word for search actually translates to visit, which is kind of the loving nature of our Father, right? He visits in love and grace, but there's also some consequence that comes along with it. I thought about this a lot this week. That idea of visit is somewhat like a family receiving the news that they lost a loved one in the active service of the military. You know, and it doesn't matter how far or how far away the, the family lives from the base, the military personnel always comes. And there is great honor and reverence and respect for them to come and deliver this news personally to the family. And I'm not saying that the family's being punished, even though there's some grave difficulties that come with that news. But that's the picture that I got this week as I thought about that. Yes, he's going to visit us, but he's going to come and he's going to judge. No matter how much honor and respect comes in that moment when the military personnel shows up at a family's house, the news is still the same. But this is the beauty of this passage. It's God's gracious accountability to us. He's telling us this on the forefront of it happening. You know, Micah Fries says it this way, this is ultimately God's good work to reveal to us the lie of non-worship. We can claim not to know what is right or wrong. We can claim not to worship. But the truth is that every person will worship. Every person will pursue what they think is right. And every one of us will be accountable for those choices that we make. Do you guys see God's graciousness in this text? He's forewarning us. He's encouraging us to, and giving us a second chance to align our hearts to worship him properly. The third and final thing I see the Lord actively doing is that he will punish. Verse 12 is also pretty clear that there's no place for complacency, no place for apathy, no place for indifference with the Lord. Those that embrace indifference, indifference, complacency, and apathy, the thought is that they won't do good or evil to me, that God won't do those things. They're the ones that will be rebuked. They're the ones that will be punished. Apathy towards the Lord is the breeding ground for pride. The idea that the details of my life don't really matter to God. So I can do as I see fit. I can choose what's best for me. That focus on self 
is pride. And it also can work inversely. Self-doubt can lead you to think, oh, you know what, God's not going to use me in the same way that he uses Joe Stewart or Tim Fritzen. That idea of self-doubt really isn't self-doubt. It's actually doubt in God. It's saying that, you know what, God wouldn't use me like that because he can't do that. I think one of the things that we have to understand about this text, particularly verse 13, is you need to understand the Lord's covenant with the Israelites. The Lord gives the Israelites the ability to produce wealth and be successful in their work as long as glory, honor, and worship is directed towards the Lord. God's declaring in this text that they've failed to keep proper worship to him. So they're forfeiting the blessings that come with that covenant with him. He says, you know, you, you can build your houses, but you'll never live in them. They'll, you can plant your vineyards, you're never going to drink the wine. Now remember, don't read this text strictly as historical. This is a true warning for you and I today. God grants us the ability to work and be successful in life as long as glory, honor, and worship are appropriately placed to him. You know, faithful followers know this already. But when we step into eternity, none of this stuff comes with us anyways, right? All the riches and material possessions, they're going to be stripped away whether you're a believer or not. And as a believer, we're okay with that. But this is a daily battle for our hearts. I mean, I'm not preaching at you. This is something that I fight through every day as well to make sure that I and my full heart is worshiping the Lord and not the circumstances around me. So one of the questions that we're trying to answer each week is what what does this mean for us today? And as I was thinking about this, I kept thinking about the song that we used to sing at Kanakuk. You know, um, I don't know many of you know I work there, and this isn't necessarily just a Kanakuk song, but um, there, there was a song that, that we sang all the time that I actually disliked. I didn't, I didn't like it because I didn't agree with it. I thought it was kind of heretical. But the kids loved it, and I'll tell you why. I'll, I'll, I'll set the stage so you understand why they loved it. <clears throat> so breakfast, lunch, and dinner, we sang a song, and we pray before every meal. And so the kids would come in hungry from, you know, running around camp all day. And, and the girls would go to the one side of the dining hall. The guys would go to the other side. And when you'd walk in, all the guys would be holding up their fingers like this. Like, oh, you know, this song called Little White Box. Like, oh, sing this song, sing this song. Okay, fine. So when we'd, when we'd say, okay, we're going to sing Little White Box, all the kids would step up on their bench that they would sit around their day, table with. And here's how the song went. If I had a little white box to put my Jesus in, I'd take him out and and put him back again. If I had a little red box to put the devil in, I'd take him out. And all the kids would jump off the benches and scream, and stop his face and put him back again. Did you catch why I didn't like the song, though? This idea of I'm going to take Jesus out of my little white box and and put him back again. That doesn't make sense, right? But what does this mean for us today? Don't put God in a box. But it's something that we fight all the time. We try to do all the time is we try to put God in a box. We have so much pride within ourselves that we have control over our own lives. 
that we put them in a box. I was, I went to hear a, an author present on his book this past week, and he, and he gave this illustration. I thought it was great. Um, think about when you're driving. When you get into your car, you get frustrated and mad at other people because they're either driving recklessly and too fast or they're driving too slow. And in our minds, subconsciously, we say, if everyone would just drive like me, everything would be fine. Or get out of my way, right? And that's the truth. I mean, that's just the way that we're wired. I could list a long and exhaustive list of the ways that we try to put God in a box, but I'm just going to give you a couple examples. We put a God in a box when we segment our lives. When what happens here on a Sunday morning has no meaning on the rest of our week. When we come in and we take Jesus out of our cute little white box and put him back again and we don't take him out till next Sunday. Or maybe if you're in a small group, you take him on a Wednesday night. We, uh, when we go to work or to school, for a lot of us, we at least leave the whole Jesus box at home. You know, we put God in a box by treating him so circumstantially. You know, when life is great, we get the bonus that we felt like we deserved. We, woo, Jesus, amen, put him back in. Or when life is not going the way we think it should, we, we don't open the box. We just look at the box and kind of poke it like, man, come on, do something. Um, we are often busy building our financial empires, our families, our big house, you know, our houses. Um, finances are almost always in separate boxes. Rarely do we give our finances over completely to the Lord. Those boxes are separate and oftentimes on separate shelves in the storage unit in our mind, right? So when we consider our worship, is our worship of the Lord the thing that covers all of those things? Or do we put Jesus in a cute little white box? Are you putting yourselves in places for the Lord to show you that he is active? Or are you protecting yourself and your family so much so that you're inadvertently saying, you know what, he's not going to do good or bad to me. Finances are a hot-button topic, I get that. But money is actually just a surface idol. And the root of that idol is what Tim Keller calls a deep idol of comfort. Keller says, idols cannot be dealt with by simply eliminating surface idols like money and sex. The deep idols have to be dealt with at a heart level. The deep idol of comfort is a heart issue about what you worship most. And this is the very reason we think we can actually put God in a box. Because we're worshiping something other than him. Security of that wealth safety of our families, successful careers, successful kids. There's this strange thing where like, we're willing to say, yeah, your kid's probably not going to be LeBron James. But then this strange thing happens where we think ours is going to be. Whether it's houses, cars, nice things, just materialism in general, those things lead to apathy. They lead to indifference. They lead to complacency and things of the Lord. How do we get to a place where we say, God's not going to do good or evil to me? We get there because we haven't done the work to uproot the idol of comfort in our life. 
When we worship comfort, the reality is we have no need for God. He's a bonus that fits into our schedule. All of your needs and wants can be satisfied by other things. Or all your needs and wants require you to live your life on a hamster wheel so that you can make sure that next month's mortgage is paid. So here's a question to help yourself kind of evaluate whether you're struggling with the idol of comfort. I don't know where this came from. It's been around for a long time. But if you think about the past month or even the past year, if God, all the prayers that you gave over the last month, over the last year, if God answered all of those prayers, would the world be any different? Or would anyone even notice? All, are all of your prayers about safety, health, wealth? Those things aren't bad. I mean, I'm not saying you should be shamed for praying for those things, but there is something greater that we ought to worship in the midst of our struggles in our life. God is gracious to put this text in our lap this morning to give us a warning that, hey, this text is not just historical, it's present warning for you and I. Because the idols of comfort are going to be removed. Build your house, you're never going to live in it. Plant your vineyards, you're never going to taste its fruit. God does not use apathy. In my prep for this message, I, I read this quote, and it has been eating at me for 10 days. I actually told my small group this past week that like, when I read the quote for the first time, I literally like flipped the book closed because I was kind of mad. Like, I was like, this is this not okay. You can't say that. But then the more I thought about it, the more I realized this is absolutely true. It's from a guy named G.A. Smith. And he says, The great causes of God and humanity are not defeated by the hot assaults of the devil, but by the slow, crushing, glacier-like mass of thousands and thousands of indifferent nobodies. God causes, God's causes are never destroyed by being blown up, but by being sat upon. Whatever we worship, we must serve. If we worship the idol of comfort, not only are we putting God in a box, but we are literally sitting down on the gifts and the calling that God has given each of us. In my office, um, I have this hand-lettered uh, quote from a poet that Kelsey hand-lettered for me, and he's one of my favorite guys to read and um, it's one of my favorite quotes. It's from a gentleman named C.T. Studd. Joe Stewart effectively calls him a gospel gangster. Uh, but this is what it says. It says, one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. One life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. I want my legacy to be marked by following Christ as his faithful servant. I don't want to be remembered for the things that I had or the success that I had or the success of my kids. I want to run hard after the Lord to worship him with my life. That's my pleading every day, every morning. I want my life to mirror Paul's words in Galatians 2.20, that I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
<laughs> Here's the reality check. God's never been in the box that we thought we put him in. We only think we can put him in the box. And the Lord is incredibly gracious and patient with us in the midst of that. But he deserves every bit of our worship. I mean, think about it. So here's Jesus actually saying In Luke 14, Jesus says almost the same thing here. He challenges us. If anyone comes after me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you wanting to build a tower doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Or what king going to war against another king will not sit down first and decide if he's able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If not, while, other, while, while the other is still far off, he sends a delegation to ask for terms of peace. In the same way, therefore, every, every one of you who does not renounce all of his possessions cannot be my disciple. Now, salt is good, but if salt should lose its taste, how will it be made salty? If it isn't fit for the soil or the manure pile, they throw it out. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen. <coughs> Sorry. If you have ears to hear, listen. Count the cost. We're not meant to love comfort. Jesus' point here is not to hate your family. The point here is those relationships should never be elevated above your relationship with him. He challenges us to count the cost because following Christ, giving your complete worship to him, is going to come with a cost in the eyes of our society. (coughs) Sorry. I want to tell you uh, about a couple of friends that Kelsey and I have. Their names are Justin and Lauren Reese. Here's a picture of them. The Reese family knows that the Lord is active, for sure. And they also know what it means to count the cost and what it means to reject the idol of comfort. You see, Justin and Lauren uh, grew up in Simi Valley, California, in the L.A. area. Lauren was a blossoming hairstylist, becoming so popular that she was cutting hair for celebrities. Justin was developing in the banker world and becoming... um, pretty successful there, and as well as an entrepreneur. But when they were in college, the Lord grabbed a hold of their hearts and broke their hearts for some of the most remote people in the world that they don't have the opportunity to hear the love of the redeeming love of Christ. And so they <clears throat> set out to become missionaries. Um, Kelsey and I were blessed to be able to do ministry with them for several years while they um, were training They even lived with us for a while. Uh, And still, to this day, one of the hardest uh, goodbyes I've ever been a part of. Uh, We love them dearly. Uh, They just have a kindred heart and spirit with us. Like, they're just great friends. Um, Justin and Lauren had two kids, Paisley and Paxton. And they moved their family seven years ago into the jungles of Papua New Guinea. They've lived amongst the Pei tribe. Uh, For seven years, they have, for the past seven years, they've been learning a language, learning a language that has basically no uh, root-based language. Thanks, man. Um, 
So they've been learning this language that literally has no root to it. Like they, they've had to kind of discover and create it as they, or not create it, but learn something that was totally created by this tribe. And so the past seven years, they've been learning it. And then they implemented some, implemented some literacy classes where now they've been teaching the paid people how to read and write it. And just, just over the last few months, they started translating the Bible into their language. And they're home on furlough right now. And so Kelsey and I had a chance to talk to them. Um, well, let me tell you a couple of things. I forgot a couple of things here. I, wanna, I wanna, want you to imagine this. Seven years in the jungle with virtually no, no conversions for Christ, with very, very few gospel conversations about Christ. And the people just don't understand it. They, they're animistic in nature, and they don't understand this idea of God in that way. Seven years of laying the groundwork to introduce people to who God is and this redeeming love of his son. In order for Justin and Lauren just to reach them, this is those little white buildings down the bottom of that river, that's the village. And in order for them just to get there, they've got to fly from the coast in a, in a brush plane into the landing strip in the middle of the jungle and they hop on a little John boat for several hours just to ride up river to get to this, junk, this village in the middle of the mountains. There are about 250 people that live in this tribe. They do have a couple of teammates. But over the past two years, their teammates have been gone. They have been in this jungle with this tribe for two years by themselves. One of their teammates, Chris, had a serious accident and was medevaced out of the village and through a series of complications and surgeries, he's been, they've been at home for two years. So Justin, Lauren, Paisley, and Paxton have been in this village for two years alone. No other English-speaking people. Two years where the only brothers and sisters in Christ you have are your nine-year-old son and your 11-year-old daughter. Can you imagine what that's like? Well, Justin and Lauren are home uh, and at the end of February, Kelsey and I were talking to them via FaceTime, and we were talking about this and just how incredibly isolated and lonely they felt um, over the last couple years. And I just broken in the, hearing them talk about it. Like I just kind of asked, like, what, what kept you going? Like, how did you know that the Lord was present and moving? And I want you to hear a couple of their answers because I think they really, not only do they apply to the idea that the Lord is active, but they really apply to uprooting and counting the costs um, of what it is to follow the Lord. So I asked that question and Lauren answered really quickly. Um, and she said, we had the word of God. It really was our sustainer over the last few years. There, I, can't, I just can't encourage you any more than that. That to open your Bible and to read this, to know the Lord. You know, no matter what your life looks like right now, our worship hinges on our engagement with him. Do you want to know how active he really is? Read the book. He speaks in his word. Do you want to make sure that your worship is of God and not of idols? Read the book. Know the redeeming love of your Savior, and it will cause you to worship. The other response was from Justin, uh, and Justin was talking about just how challenging it is to be 
dad and brother in Christ to your nine-year-old boy. Um, and he was talking about this and just kind of saying, yeah, 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 I was, there were definitely moments where I kind of wallowed in my own self-pity. Um, but then he said this, he said, sometimes you have to put yourself amongst the tribe, amongst the lost, to realign yourself and get a little perspective of why you're here and how God actually is moving. The Lord is active in our response. So act. Not just in safe circles, but get involved with those who don't know the Lord. Get involved with the lost. He uses our faithfulness to reveal himself in action. And most of the time, he reveals, ourself, he reveals himself in action to the lost through our willingness to go. The final thing is, you know, I want to encourage you, the Lord is active in our prayer. Um, when your worship is aligned correctly and pure, God moves through your prayer. Now, that might not mean he's like breaking down walls and healing and, and all that sort of thing, but what I can tell you and promise you is that when your worship is aligned correctly and you are seeking the Lord in prayer, you are going to find a peace like no other. You're going to find rest like no other and assurance like no other to endure whatever it is that you're going through. So final thoughts. How, the other question we try to answer all the time is how does this text point to Jesus? The glorious grace of God is that he sent his son here and Jesus paid it all. When we read Zephaniah 1.12 and we see the warning of coming judgment that God will illuminate sin, he's going to search it out. There's nothing that we're going to be able to hide from him. For believers, in that moment, we find rest, we find assurance, and we find freedom in the truth that Jesus did take up all those sins upon himself. He paid every last cent, and there is no more debt. Zephaniah 3.15 says that the Lord has removed your punishment. <coughs> the deep idol of comfort has no place for a follower of Christ. God is sending his son, God sent his son, Jesus to earth, to take on the form of man, to take on the discomfort of sin so that you and I don't have to. The ultimate comfort for Jesus was to be with the Father, right? But because of Jesus, he sends because of Jesus and his work on the cross, the ultimate comfort for you and I is to be with Christ. <clears throat> God proves his own love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Amen. There's no answer within ourselves. It's only Jesus. There's no answer within the possessions that you have, the success that you have, your own discipline, your own goodness. Nothing of those things will fulfill you. It's only Jesus. If you think about the passage this morning, Jesus takes this thought of light in Zephaniah and he turns it on its head. <clears throat> he takes light that strikes fear within, within us that of God's wrath. We fear that. But he takes that light, what signifies death, what signifies judgment, what signifies retribution, and Jesus takes that light upon himself and on the cross and he turns that light into hope into life, into salvation. Think about these verses. John 1, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and darkness has not overcome it. 
Jesus says in, ver- in John 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And when we step into eternity before the throne of God, Revelation 21, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. If you're listening this morning and realizing, maybe I do have a deep idol of comfort, that your worship is misplaced, I want you to hear us say, we love you. You're not alone in this. It's a daily battle to give proper worship and honor and glory to the Lord. You're not alone. But how do we begin to deal with the idols at the heart level? And this, same, this may seem too simple, but I really think it is. We repent and we rejoice in the light of Christ. Motivated by the gospel, the good news, repentance is from the inside out. It's not from the outside in. We don't start with our behavior and try to go in and change our hearts. We need to start with our hearts, motivated by the gospel. As we see it, as we believe it, as we hear it, as we embrace it, through that, more and more of our heart transfers from the trust of those things that we find comfort in to Jesus Christ. There is great freedom and joy giving our whole worship to Christ. If you're here this morning and you've never given your life over to the Lord, I'd love to talk with you, to pray with you. But you've heard the crux of the gospel this morning. Left to our own devices, we deserve the punishment of God. But by God's grace, he sent his son to take the sin of all mankind. On that day of judgment, the day of the Lord, God doesn't see your sin. He sees the sacrifice of his son and he sees a spotless, pure worshiper of the Lord. Amen? We pray for us and let's worship. Father, if we need to repent, we do. God, where the places in our life that we worship other things, forgive us. Lord, give us a new heart, a new desire to press in and embrace the gospel. Lord, we are grateful for your son, for his work on the cross and the redeeming love that it provides each of us. Lord, as we leave this place, God, may we just glorify you and worship you with all of our lives. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.